Hello everyone, I'm Paris Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox, hosted by Richard Lummis. Hello and welcome to another episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast about leadership. This is Richard Lummis. I'm here with Tom Fox for another discussion on how we can improve our leadership skills by learning from others, drawing lessons from many sources, including history, fiction, film, and business writing. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Richard. Uh, Arthur, Mark Bowden first came to my attention with Black Hawk Down, a book about 1993 Special Forces debacle in Mogadishu, Somalia, involving attempted capture of a warlord. I went ahead and looked him up on uh, Wikipedia, and he claims to have been inspired to become a journalist by reading Tom Wolfe's Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. He's written books about the killing of Pablo Escobar, the Colombian drug lord, and Osama bin Laden, as well as countless articles, including a number for The Atlantic. I particularly enjoyed The Dark Art of Interrogation, about uh, enhanced interrogation techniques, and Abraham Lincoln is an Idiot, the difficulty of recognizing excellence in its own time. Um, from Wikipedia, Bowden also holds unconventional views on the f- future of the media in the 21st century. He doesn't believe attention spans are shortening, and he thinks young people are just as drawn to deep journalism as other generations. He says, nothing will ever replace language as the medium of thought, so nothing will replace the well-written, originally reported story or the well-reasoned essay. That's kind of a long-winded introduction to his new book, which is titled Way, 1968, about what's generally conceded to be a pivotal battle in the Vietnam War. Um, I highly recommend it. Bowden examines the battle through interviews with participants on both sides, as well as contemporary media coverage and uh, subsequently written secondary sources. We'll be talking today about some of the leadership lessons we can draw from some of the episodes in this book. Tom, where do you want to start? Well, Richard, uh, first of all, let me start by uh, uh, thanking you for uh, turning me on to the book and uh, echoing your sentiments. It's just an excellent book. I also read Black Hawk Down, um, very much a debacle, uh, and way certainly cost more lives. But in the American uh, mythos, I think way is actually has a larger place because uh, many people believe it was the psychological turning point uh, in the war when the everyday American citizen back home uh, began to at least uh, suspect that we were not going to win the war uh, and that the propaganda and information that the government had released uh, was not um, equivalent to what was going on on the ground. And Entirely we're gonna, truthful. Well, that's, that's there, there perhaps was a credibility gap was the phrase used to believe in the 60s. And we're going to talk about kind of that uh, at the end. And, and I really just wanted to uh, have the opportunity to explore this with you from the leadership perspective. And uh, I'd really thought about it in three distinct different phases that we could talk about kind of the before uh, the battle, the during the battle, and, and, and after the battle. Uh, and if that might be a framework that we could use, because I found leadership lessons in, in all of those. Uh, first of all, in the before, um, I, I had uh, the Battle of Quezon is just burned in my memory for, for reasons that are now shrouded in mist. Nevertheless, uh, Quezon was at its peak, I think, in the fall of 1967, and Quezon was a U.S. outpost at the far end of the Central Highlands. Uh, fairly close to the Laotian border. And Westmoreland, the U.S. General Westmoreland, had decreed that Quezon would be there and it would not fall. It was under pretty much 24-hour, 24-7 continuous attack by the North Vietnamese. And so 
two things about Quezon, I think, impacted um, the thoughts around, the thought process around the Battle of Way. The first one was, and, and I think you may be able to, to talk a little bit more in depth on this, was that to actually invade Way was a huge logistical effort. Not only did they have to bring troops down the Ho Chi Minh Trail, um, but they also had to bring supplies um, in all forms down the trail, and they had to get them past Quezon while actively attacking Quezon every day. So uh, logistically, it was a huge um, effort by the North Vietnamese, both the regular army and the Viet Cong within the, within, uh, the South. The second thing was that it led to many of the decisions Erroneous decisions, I think, were made in the early phases of the Tet Offensive in the Battle of Way. That uh, this, uh, the Tet Offensive, was a diversion to draw U.S. attention away from Quezon, and that's how General Westmoreland saw it, and it turned out not to be true. So, uh, logistically, we saw, uh, it, at least in my mind, uh, failures in um, foresight uh, from the U.S. Uh, military command recognizing that a buildup was going on. You, you, there is no logistical buildup that ever happens in a vacuum. Um, the Russians knew the Germans were building up before they attacked. The Germans knew the Russians were building up before they counterattacked. You always know someone's building up. That I recognize it does not give you the insight into when an attack may occur. But when you have troops on the ground reporting something is going on, uh, from a risk assessment perspective, you need to assess that risk. And you need to try to turn out uh, determine what the possible um, outcomes could be so you could manage that risk going forward. If you overlay that with the absolute rosy picture that General Westmoreland was painting at the time, indeed in uh, 1967 he went on an end-of-the-war tour and really uh, claimed that the not just prosperity was just around the corner, but the war was almost over. And this was really only two, two, two plus years after heavy American uh, increased uh, involvement in the war. So I thought uh, it was really striking to me, one, the just the massive logistical effort that the North Vietnamese um, actually were able to pull off, but also the absolute failures in uh, foresight uh, by the high American command. So... Well, I think uh, Quezon's an interesting battle to bring up. The I never have really understood it. Um, as near as I understand it, the concept was really sort of the the fall of the French at Dien Bien Phu had basically ended the French possession of, uh, of Indochina, and Westmoreland was set up Quezon almost in defiance of that lesson. As, as a way of showing that this would not happen to the U.S. by putting an exposed fire base in the middle of nowhere, which served virtually no strategic purpose that I could tell. In a valley. Yeah. <laughs> so, in a valley. Um, yes, yes, all the above. Okay. Uh, except to, no, I think actually his purpose was, in addition to what you had articulated about Dien Bien Phu and parallels there, but it was to to try to irritate the North Vietnamese try to put something close to the Laotian border and the Ho Chi Minh Trail that, if given the authority, he could then actually interdict on and uh, perhaps fly, perhaps he envisioned not just troops, but also some sort of uh, aerial uh, missions uh, to try to interdict on the uh, on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Uh, he never, uh, I don't think, ever got formal approval to do that uh, from Lyndon Johnson, although obviously uh, 
Nixon later invaded Cambodia, but that was much later and really not a part of this story. So the um, in the before the actual Tet Offensive in the Battle of Way, just uh, uh, dramatic mistakes by the U.S. High Command. Yeah, and um, the uh, one a U.S. Navy analyst after the war called uh, the run-up to the Tet Offensive a logistical miracle. Uh, and Bowden points out that it's only possible for this to have happened and for it to have been kept secret if people in the countryside actively supported it or didn't care. He leaves out a third possibility, which I think is also relevant, which is that they could have been intimidated into silence. But in any event, what warnings there were were completely ignored. Um, but the warnings were fairly, fairly few. They actually did a brilliant job of, of setting it up uh, in secrecy. And... Um, and their initial success was just phenomenal. Yes. In fact, the, uh, the description is that uh, Bowden says is, the surprise achieved in a way was complete. It's not a case of simply being caught off guard. It's so unexpected it triggered not just alarm, but disbelief, deadly disbelief. Um, and it led to completely ignoring reports from the field that contradicted their initial rosy opinion. Um, I, th I think there's some real leadership lessons there in the effect a setback can have on the psychology of someone. In the case of Westmoreland, it simply hardened his opinion that everything was going fine. Uh, indeed it did, and uh, th we're going to have a lot to unpack when we, when we talk about the actual battle itself, but uh, the Marines on the ground uh, told and communicated to their commanders that this was not just a probing attack. This was not just a company or two of uh, locals who had infiltrated and taken over a building or two. This was a, a major attack by a large number of troops. And if I can uh, find it here, um, I think the second day there were four Marine companies that had been fed into way. And as, as um, Bowden claimed, they got creamed. It was clear enough to them that the city was in enemy hands and taking it back was going to be hell. At one point, um, the commander of task force X-ray from regional headquarters had said there might be a few platoons of enemy, and the Marine captain rebuked him with, hell, we've got an entire platoon of NVA dead on the wire. So when you have that many dead, uh, it's a pretty good sign that something different is going on, and the... Um, the initial response uh, was that the South, South Vietnamese could take care of this. It was a South Vietnamese problem. This was really their city. Way was the ancient capital of uh, the Vietnam, I think, <clears throat> before the French uh, took it over. Many uh, critical um, Buddhist shrines and temples there, which were a whole other issue, came up from all of that. But uh, the Arvin were just absolutely overwhelmed. And then, of course, you have the quality of the Arvin soldiers uh, at that point. Uh, so initially, it was a uh, not only huge setback, but you had the high command in Saigon and even down the road in Pleiku not believing the information from the eyes on the ground Marines. Well, and in fact, Westmoreland's initial report to the Joint Chiefs was off by a factor of 20 on the number of Vietnamese in Way. Um, and, and your point about the uh, 
the historic importance of way, it did lead to the fact that the Marines were initially, and for most of the battle actually, denied the ability to use artillery and air support uh, in order to avoid damaging the historical monuments, which led to hundreds of American deaths that were probably unnecessary. So I'd like to read a quote that Bowden quote uh, set forth about uh, the first Sunday of the attack from Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, and this ties into the point we were talking about with Kason. It's found at page 230 in the book. It's quite clear that the military objective of the attack has not been achieved. It was to divert U.S. troops and South Vietnamese troops from the probable offensive action of the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese around Kason. And even after the city was overrun, they still saw this as an aversion around Quezon. And this is with Marines on the ground talking about trained NBA soldiers, not uh, Vietnam or Viet Cong uh, coming forward. So the uh, the failures of leadership, uh, I, I really hadn't thought about the psychological impact of just being knocked in the, in the jaw. But uh, the Marines knew one thing, and the Marines knew take the hill. And that's what they did. And uh, when they reported back they couldn't take the hill because of simply overwhelming firepower, that was dismissed uh, to the point where um, I think some commanders were afraid to push back too far. Yeah, and that's one of uh, Bowdoin's points that I thought was really interesting about the the lower-level leadership as opposed to the the, uh, leadership in the upper echelons. Uh, The Marines did prove fairly adept at improvisation, as they usually do, they also, on occasion, simply ignored orders. There was one instance where there was a sniper in a, in a spire, and although the tanks had been ordered not to fire their main guns in the city, the commander of the tank simply shot the top off the spire and then called asking for permission, which was then denied. Um, so the other thing they did was, although they weren't allowed to use artillery, one of the Bowdoin's heroes in this book is a man named Lieutenant Colonel Ernie Cheatham. He pulled all the old Korean War era bazookas and recoilless rifles out of uh, storage, which were artillery by any name, except <laughs> it was just a uh, very creative interpretation of his uh, instructions that he, he used those, and that's actually how they ended up being able to retake the city. So from the, um, during the battle itself, did, uh, uh, as I recall, Creighton Abrams uh, took actual field command. I may have that wrong. It may have been just him coming to the front. But the tone greatly seemed to change when Abrams was there. Did you sense that as well? Yeah, Abrams was certainly more clear-eyed about what was going on. Um, He acknowledged that they had been caught by surprise. And um, let's see where was that? That was there was there was a part where he was talking to Cronkite and basically just uh, you know, correctly pointed out that was Moreland was simply either delusional or lying to them. Um, he spoke about their complete tactical surprise, the magnitude of the impact on the troops, and the scope of the enemy's accomplishments. Um, I mean, this is a guy who fought in Battle of the Bulge in World War II. <laughs> and led troops in Korea after the uh, Chinese invasion. So, yeah. yes, he was not one to uh, hyperpole. Uh, he certainly was able to assess the situation. And I thought his clear-eyed view 
really it certainly changed the tone, uh, and that really leads us, uh, you know, perhaps now to the the after action. The after- well, let, let's go back to Abrams for a moment because okay. one of the other things about him that struck me was he sought out lower level commanders to talk to him. Right. So he was the only one who was actually listening to people uh, who who had been experienced the street level fighting. And I think that led to his more accurate appraisal. Um, and you pointed out that the Marines pushed back, but um, as Bowden says, part of being a leader is being able to push up as well as down. If you knew more because of where you were and what you saw, then you stood your ground. You didn't just protest. If need be, you refused. And there was one instance later in the battle when uh, the higher commands tried to replace a major who had, in their opinion, failed, in part because they had refused to allow him the tools he needed. And the colonel who was supposed to replace him refused and said he would resign before he would do it. At that point, the order was conveniently forgotten and and subsequently ignored. So there was this whole up-down tension in the leadership ranks that I think Creighton was the one who kind of got around it. Creighton Abrams, Um, for what it's worth. So we also talked about... um, in the, uh, if not misinterpretation of events or facts, the outright denial of reality, the uh, uh, individual NBA or Viet Cong soldiers. And I think we both recognize that they had a different political tradition. They had different motivations. They were very uh, motivated cadres uh, who probably, uh, I would have assumed, knew they were on a suicide mission. Uh, nevertheless, uh, they actually believed, or at least if you listen to uh, Ken Burns on uh, Vietnam, that the leaders at that time had uh, uh, told them that there would be a spontaneous uprising by South Vietnamese uh, literally across the country during the Tet Offensive. That did not happen in any way, shape, or form. But what did happen was uh, the outright massacre, I think, of up to 6,000 citizens, South Vietnamese citizens of Way. Uh, deemed undesirables by the uh, North Vietnamese. And typically in a war, when you execute a large number of civilians, it really firms up the civilian resistance and really hardens that resistance. I'm not sure we ever saw that in South Vietnam. Uh, And maybe that goes to your point, uh, which you raised earlier about the intimidation. And uh, we never saw the... uh, uh, not individual South Vietnamese, we did see that. But we really never saw the population just step back and say, no, we're not going to be uh, pawns where we're going to be shot by people coming across our houses. Yeah. Well, I think when in uh, our discussions before this podcast, you pointed out that the vast majority of the citizens of South Vietnam really didn't take sides. They just wanted to be left alone. And um, I think in part, they didn't trust either of the powers fighting. They didn't trust the communists. They didn't trust the, uh, whether you regard it as the puppet government or the, the, the legitimate government of South Vietnam is pretty much irrelevant. They, they simply didn't think that either one had their best interests at heart. And I think that was probably a pretty good appraisal on their part. One thing we never seem to have understood in the United States was that the government of South Vietnamese was really a minority of a minority because it was largely Catholic within a much larger Buddhist country. And many of the problems which led to the direct American involvement 
were from the treatment of the South Vietnamese leadership uh, to and against the uh, Buddhists, uh, which I think enraged uh, the individual citizens of Vietnam. But we had, uh, whether or not they were a public, whether you want to call them a puppet regime or not, they seemed to be the antithesis of the normal or the average Vietnamese citizen uh, contributing to all of these problems. Um, so you posed a question to me before, which was, I think, was way the turning point militarily of the war. And, um, you know, I'm not sure we had a military turning point, but what I do believe is the way was psychologically for the United States the turning point. And the reason it was psychologically the turning point is um, for people listening to this podcast under the age of 60, you may not understand that this was the first war that we watched over dinner. Uh, literally every night at 5.30, ABC, NBC, and CBS had live or, uh, or video reports from Vietnam, and that's when we watched national news. Local news was at 6. So if you ate an early dinner, uh, you could watch it. If, if not, you had to watch it during dinner. And this was way was when it changed. Way was when uh, it became clear that the messages that the general American public, Joe Q. Citizen, was getting from our generals and from our politicians was not what was happening. And there was a, um, I think one of the, the key turning points psychologically was when Walter Cronkite went to Way near the end of the battle and reported from Way. And his assessment, I'm going to read this because. Uh, I found it uh, clear-eyed, and I'm, I'm sorry I don't have the page number, um, but it read in part, to say that we are closer to victory today is to believe in the face of evidence the optimists have been wrong in the past. To suggest we are on the edge of defeat is to yield to unreasonable pessimism. To say that we are mired in stalemate seems the only realistic yet unsatisfactory conclusion. On the off chance that military and political analysts are right, in the next few months we must test the enemy's intentions in case it is indeed his last big gasp before negotiations. But it is increasingly clear to this reporter that the only rational way out then will be to negotiate, not as victors, but as honorable people who have lived up to their pledge to defend democracy and did so the best they could. Uh, Bowden uh, notes after this quote, after watching Cronkite's editorial report, President Lyndon Johnson is purported to say, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost middle America. But what struck me, Richard, was the assessment of Cronkite, not that we had lost. It was to say that if you are a hardened or extreme optimist, nothing's changed. If you're a pessimist, then we've lost and we have to leave now. Uh, he correctly says we're in stalemate, yeah. and that's where we were. And it turns out that's where we had been uh, for quite some time. So, and then goes on to suggest that negotiations are best when you're in stalemate. So that, to me, was really the the clear-eyed assessment. It wasn't that we could never win. Uh, he didn't say that. He he didn't say we've lost. He simply said we are in stalemate. And. Uh, the United States at that point did not have the political will because politicians did not have the political capital uh, to move us to have the political will to move past stalemate. So very long-winded answer to your question, perhaps, but I really found that to be the key um, lesson from or key uh, outcome of way. Well, and I think in terms of the leadership lesson, one of the things you can say is what were they trying to lead America towards? 
And can you really articulate what their goal was? And was it ever achievable? I think if it was a unified Vietnam under a democratic regime, it was never even in the cards. Um, if it was sort of a stalemate like we've maintained on the Korean Peninsula for the last 65 years, maybe that was possible. But that's a hard sell. Well, uh, I actually debated this with my father quite a bit. And we both felt that at that time, both with Presidents Kennedy and Johnson, uh, as Democrats particularly, they had to be seen as hard on communism. Mm -hmm. uh, the China lobby was very uh, active and vigorous. Uh, I think the Republicans were viewed as more vigorous against fighting communism. And I had always thought it was just we would go anywhere to fight communism. And unfortunately, I got stuck in the in the jungles of Vietnam and, and got brought to stalemate. Um, but as far as I could tell, that was really our only strategic goal. Yeah. Well, and it's still hotly debated whether Ho Chi Minh was a nationalist or a hardline Stalinist. Um, I think his, his apologists claim that he was simply a misunderstood Vietnamese nationalist. I think the evidence is pretty good against that, but... Um, that's a little beyond the scope of this podcast. Um, but yeah, I think, but I think one of the things about leadership is you do have to know where you're going and what, what your goal is, and especially in military leadership where you're ordering people to give up their lives. Um, so anyway, uh, I think it's a great book. I think there's a lot to learn from it and uh, it's certainly a much more in-depth coverage of, uh, of a very interesting battle in a, in a very long war. I found a lot of lessons. I learned a lot of uh, new information. I was, um, I guess, Richard, the, the overriding lesson for me was that um, you have to uh, listen to the eyes on the ground. And you, you don't have to believe it unskeptically, but you have to listen to that. And you have to listen to the information. You have to take the input from your internal control systems, which in the military are the people on the ground. And help them uh, use that information uh, critically to evaluate in a fair, rational, and accurate assessment. And that's, uh, I guess, from the leadership perspective, the... Uh, the one thing I wanted to try to emphasize in this podcast today. Well, the other thing I got was the incredible power of denial. Um, that famous Mike Tyson quote, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Right. Well, I think that's kind of what happened to Westmoreland here. And he was simply unable to adjust his view to uh, facts that he did not want to see. And I think as a, lead, as a leader, that's really something to look out for. That's a great point. Stop trying to fit the world to your preconceptions. Well, Richard, I, it was a great book. It was a great read. Uh, uh, not uh, uh, unpleasant, but I think lots of uh, lessons that Americans need to uh, consider today on a variety of uh, different areas. I agree. So thank you for listening. And for now, this is Richard Lummis and Tom Fox with 12 O'Clock High. This is Paris Fox again. We hope you enjoyed this episode of 12 O'Clock High a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox. If you enjoyed the show, please go to iTunes and rate the podcast. Thank you for listening.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.